On this episode of Hear Tell, a son wrestles with how best to honor his troubled mother and wonders which complicated souvenirs he should pass on to the next generation. When my mother passed in March of 2001, Blair was on bed rest in advance of the birth of our son. Beginning that January, I'd flinched every time the phone rang. Was she going or was he coming? My name is Andre Gallant. I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA, a narrative nonfiction program housed in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. My guest today is John T. Edge. He's the author of The Potlicker Papers, a food history of the modern South. He's also the director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, as well as the host of ESPN's True South. He's also a member of the MFA faculty. John T. joined me to share an essay called My Mother's Catfish Stew. Originally published in the Oxford American Magazine, the essay marks a creative shift for John T. He's well known for tucking into the idiosyncrasies of the American South by way of its secret histories, the ones hiding in the woodshed behind a barbecue shack, or the coffee cup ring on a fading casserole recipe. This time, his own past served as prompt specifically the memory of his mother and his duty toward her legacy. I asked John T. about the changes that occurred in his writing life that allowed him to plumb his own stories and what purpose he found in doing so. We talk at length before and after he reads the essay, so stick around. So let me start with a request that's pertinent but uh, ultimately Freudian. I'm scared. Uh, Tell me about your mom. My mother, at her best, was an incredibly inspiring person. Um, My mother, at her best, built great confidence in me. My mother, at her best, was my best gregarious self and what I try to be in some moments. Um, And I had not talked about that. I had not recognized that in myself. I had not even recognized that there is something within me that wants to be at the center of the stage with the Klieg lights focused on him. Um, And it's beyond the ego that drives me to do that. And I've come to recognize by way of writing this piece and thinking about it, I am, um, in essence, fulfilling my mother's drive to be in the spotlight, my mother's drive to live a creative life, my mother's want to be something other than a small-town South Carolina girl. And I'm doing it um, from a small town in Mississippi. I mean, your readers are are used to you, the I, the John T. Edge I in mm-hmm. your stories. They're used to first person from you. What were you nervous about moving into this world of true first person writing, personal right. essay writing? I mean, yeah, I'm I'm present in most of my Oxford American essays. I'm present in even my book, The Potlicker Papers. I show up every once in a while. So that was the way I thought about my own writing is, yes, I'm present but I'm not going to get in the way, 
right? I'm not going to get in the way of other people's stories. My curiosity should be the driver, not my persona. So in a way, this was, you know, maybe a piece you wouldn't have really attempted to write just a couple of years ago. No. What's changed in your understanding of your craft as a writer that kind of made this an undertaking worth doing? I mean, this will sound like I'm playing up to the podcast, um, but teaching in the University of Georgia's MFA program has challenged me in two different ways. One, to think about what narrative writing truly is and what that requires, the kind of reporting that it requires and the kind of inquiry that requires. Um, in the same process, um, that rigor has brought me to my own story and has brought me to a reckoning that to write about others, I first got to put my own house in order. I've still got to figure out the stance I want to take in the world. And I think in some ways I had deferred that stance or deferred my reckoning with that stance. Um, and now I realize that I've got to figure out that stance before I can better tell the stories of others. I'm not giving up on other people. I'm still going to write about other folks, but I'm also going to spend some time on myself. It's about putting your house in order. Yeah, it's about putting my house in order. And my wife, uh, Blair Hobbs, is a, a poet by training, uh, an artist and a teacher of poetry now. And even a year ago, we both talked about this, that you know, we both – she with her students, me with my own writing, and me talking to students to say, listen, this isn't therapy, damn it. Um, this is writing. And if it you know, has positive therapeutic effect for you, that's great. But you're not entering my classroom, she would say. Or um, I would say when I sat down to write, this isn't about therapy for me. Um, this is about writing a good piece. Um, and mm, we've changed our mind a little bit. Um <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm 56. I, I like the fact that I can be dead-ass wrong at 55 and be on the better side of right by the time I've turned 56. Yeah, I mean, speak to me more about that idea of, of therapy because I think for myself, too, it would not have been something I would even be prompting anyone to write about. But I, I feel I'm like— I'm still not comfortable with that it's either. It's not comfortable, but and, and it's been you know pilloried in the in the media, the the first person industrial complex, whatnot. <laughs> um, but I can't uh, I can't let go that you know yeah maybe the story isn't going to be published in the best literary journal that you want to get there, but there's there's still a great point in doing that writing. Yeah, I, I mean I'll say this about that. I, I have never written just to write. I've never been the person who put something, you know, who had something in me that had to come out like, you know, Sigourney Weaver and Alien. Like, it's just never been that way. Um, it's um, I have written to be published and for commerce from the very beginnings of my writing career. So... I'm not going to step away from that. Writing is not going to become therapy for me. Um, but is there a positive therapeutic effect from me having written for a commercial publication like the Oxford American, which is also a nonprofit, or <laughs> Garden and Gun, or um, on a book project, which I'm trying to figure out how to write now? Yes, all those things can live together, and that feels like a more honest way to write to me. And I've discovered that late in my 50s by way of working at the University of Georgia with 
Valerie Boyd and Lola Seeley and Moni Basu and, and Jan Winburn and Pat Thomas and a whole host of other folks. When you write about the South, it's you're writing about place, not necessarily as in a physical sense. You're you're talking about emotional, psychological geography. Um, but in the essay, probably perhaps the most discrete piece of geography in your life, mm-hmm. your childhood home, becomes a character. What was that like to write about something that really hadn't come out yet? I mean, I write about my home and the woods surrounded as a place of menace. Um, and to write this kind of piece, what you do if you do the kind of stuff you and I try is you think about the scenes that can carry the burden of the piece. And so as I reflected on my childhood, um, I thought about a number of scenes. I think about finding a young man not much older than me dead on my parents' floor, bedroom floor. Um, I can see that. I can't unsee it. Um, as I stacked up those scenes like that and others that were tough and others that were beautiful, um, I recognized something anew about the place where I grew up. And I realized that the childhood I thought I had, I hadn't really had. Um, And once I stacked up those scenes in an attempt to write, I realized the period of time in which those things happened in my home in those woods, out in Jones County, Georgia. And I'd never known the kind of timing and and uh, tightness of that time frame before. And so when I stacked up those scenes in an attempt to write, I saw my house and the woods surrounding it as this place of menace that threatened me. And I didn't know that until I stacked up those scenes in an attempt to write this piece. Are you still able to look back at that time with another lens, or or has it shifted it too far? Um, this piece was the beginning of something for me to to kind of you know figure out what went wrong and what went right out in those woods, and I think that's even similar to a phrase I use in the piece. Um, and 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 uh, say it again because it's 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 the case. Like I'm now trying to conspire like. Who needs a writer in residence for, you know, a month in Macon, Georgia, or, you know, um, where can, how can I dig back into that place and make sense of what befell me, what befell my mother, what lies I was told and what, you know, I grew up in the home of Confederate Brigadier General. I was told a lot of lies. I lived with lies. I lived enmeshed in lies. I lived in a swamp of lies, you know, in route to Gray, Georgia. Well, is there anything else we should know before we, we hear your essay. Sometimes you wonder when you write whether you reach people. Um, in fact, almost all the time I wonder whether what I'm doing matters and whether I'm reaching people. Um, and this is one of the few times I feel like I reached people. Um, and I didn't know the power of the kind of narrative that I constructed. I didn't know the way that people would read this and see something of their own life in it. I I wasn't expecting that. Um, I didn't go in wanting that. Um, I didn't go in asking for that. But, boy, it's been such a great 
pleasure is the not right not the right word. Um, it's been such. Um, it's an honor to to yeah to have that conversation with readers. Yeah, I mean it's it's honor isn't it either. It's it's a it's this recognition. There's a like unified field theory about humanity in this, like you, this private pain that you wrote about someone else connects with it. And, and you begin to think um, expansive thoughts about your fellow woman and man. And, and that's a gift. So I'd say the response to this piece is a gift for me. And, and in that it, I think and hope has made me more empathetic and more willing to talk about my vulnerabilities and recognize that in my vulnerabilities may lay the strengths of others. And now, here's John T. Edge reading My Mother's Catfish Stew. When my mother passed in March of 2001, Blair was on bed rest in advance of the birth of our son. Beginning that January, I'd flinched every time the phone rang. Was she going or was he coming? In-stage dementia and malnutrition took her. That's what my mother's death certificate said. But the past two decades had done damage that an autopsy might not show. By the mid-1970s, when she was in her 50s, Tumblers of morning vodka had replaced bottles of evening beer. After I left for college in 1980, my father divorced her and married a co-worker. Somewhere in there, she drove her Plymouth Valiant into a ditch and got fished out by the sheriff. By the early 1980s, my mother had wrecked most of her friendships, too. After their divorce finalized in 1982, My mother moved from Clinton, Georgia, where I grew up, to Columbia, South Carolina, where her sister lived. After a stroke in the early 90s, she moved again, this time to Atlanta, Georgia, where I lived before I moved to Oxford, Mississippi. Nearly a decade in a nursing home followed. I don't recall much from that time, but I do remember that early on, a nurse asked me to quit bringing her the mouthwash she requested. I didn't understand until the nurse told me that my mother's preferred brand contained alcohol. Our neighbor Glenn Hunt delivered Jess 11 days after my mother died. Her newspaper obituary said the service would be private. In truth, there was none. Later that summer, as Jess began to sleep through the night, my father carried her ashes back to Bowman, South Carolina, where she was born. In the years since, I've traveled through Orangeburg County on the way to and from Charleston, but I've never visited the grave of Mary Beverly Evans Edge. Her resting place and my responsibility to her had slipped my mind. My mother loomed large in my very small hometown. Frustrated by Clinton, bored by what was expected of her, She worked hard to recast the pageant in which she fitfully participated. Back in the early 1970s, when I was baseball-obsessed, she served as a perennial team mother. When my Little League team won a county championship, she showered us with a bottle of champagne. 
After some of the parents objected, my mother told them that she had cut the champagne with Sprite. A bright smile creased her face, and she threw her head back and laughed, like Betty Davis in her black and white prime. We deserve to celebrate like the pros did on television, she said. And then my mother shook the bottle again, spraying down the few kids who had missed her first volley. Late one summer afternoon, a year or so later, she stood before my Little League teammates alongside a furled American flag in the banquet room of a Shoney's in nearby Macon. As we dug into burgers and shrimp baskets, she passed out Kennedy half dollars and paraphrased his inaugural address, saying, Ask not what Little League Baseball can do for you. Ask what you can do for Little League Baseball. I was embarrassed by her, but more embarrassed by my failure. We had lost a playoff game. Specifically, I lost the game when I threw three wild pitches in a row and a player from the other team scored from first. Dressed in a red skirt and a white blouse to match our red and white uniforms, her gray and blonde hair tumbling from beneath a ball cap, my mother asked us that day to dig deep and find meaning in that loss. In that moment, she looked so happy, working the crowd, hugging necks, handing each player a round of silver. She was her best self. She knew it, and I knew it too. She was a genius I've come to recognize at recasting defeats as glorious spectacles. Faced with small-town ignorance, fearful of what small-town boredom might wrest from her, she did her best to divert and subvert. Looking back, I see my best self in her flagrancy, and I glimpse what my worst self might have nurtured had the darker times in Clinton defined my life. When I was not yet a teenager, as my mother and I ate salmon croquettes and conjugated verbs at the kitchen table, I heard a small pop in another room. On the floor of my parents' bedroom, I found the young man my parents paid to work odd jobs, the black young man my mother called the houseboy. That horrific discovery looms in the stories I tell about my childhood, but my memory only carries me to the footboard on my father's side of the bed, where blood spilled from his head and pooled on the heart pine planks. For reasons I still don't understand, that young man, just a couple of years older than me, had shot himself to death with my father's pistol. Earlier this year, my father told me that the mother of one of my young friends had cruelly spread the rumor that I pulled the trigger. Drink and depression took my mother. She and my father argued often over different things, but most of their fights ended the same way. With my mother throwing herself at my father's feet, like a stock character from a theater production, begging for something she knew she would never get. My father recognized that our home was no place to raise a boy. Again and again, he plotted moves that never came to pass, including an application for a Fulbright to study criminology at Cambridge. And I counted on changes that never gained traction. When I was in my mid-teens, my mother ran out the door with a pistol of her own, 
threatening to kill herself. A couple of minutes later, we heard a crack from the dark woods. My father and I ran into the night to find her crying on a bench in the rock garden among the azaleas beneath a cedar arbor. A warm pistol lay on the cold ground by her side. About this same time, some of our neighbors began burgling our home. We lived on seven acres out in the county. On Saturdays, those neighbors sometimes waited in the woods until we left for Atlanta. They crashed through burglar bars, broke down doors, axed through windows, and took what they could use or sell, often the stereo components that had begun to buy and trade. This happened so often that my father, who worked as a federal probation and parole officer, had an alarm system installed with a bullhorn siren mounted at the back eave that faced the woods and an infrared motion device linked to the sheriff's office. On the very afternoon that elaborate system was installed, my family returned home to find Lilliput, our blonde and apricot-curled Yorkie-poo, lying in a pool of blood. Our burglars had blasted apart the siren with a shotgun, and when our yippy dog wouldn't stop yipping, they gouged her throat with one of our fireplace pokers, and then they retreated through the woods. Later that same year, the older brother of one of my Little League teammates, who lived on the other side of the woods and who led the burglaries of our home, beat his father to death, doused him in gasoline, and set him on fire just up the road. I learned through the local newspaper that their father had been a Baptist preacher. I grew up a country boy, spelunking the deep gully behind our house, fording creeks barefoot and cut off shorts. I can recall the thrill of swing blading through privet to make a clearing. But in the wake of those burglaries, the woods became a place of menace. I've carried little knowledge of and appreciation for the natural world into adulthood. Ask me how to name a bush or a flower or a bird, and I blank. Compare a tree canopy to a cathedral, as a friend did recently, and I wish I could see what you see. The country unmade my mother, and it nearly unmade me. On the other side of the azaleas, beyond the clearing, threats real and imagined lurked. Years would pass before I connected the country where my mother went haywire to the country where burglars crouched in the woods. But I knew from the time I was a teenager that I wanted to leave Clinton and those woods behind, even as I longed to carry forward the best of my mother. She gave me much to carry. When I was in grammar school and our high school baseball team played at storied Luther Williams Field in Macon, my mother refused to sit with the masses way back in the grandstand. Instead, she spread a blanket over the dugout. My classmates sometimes heckled us when we scrambled over the railing, for we were nearly on the field and we were surely a spectacle. That was just the way she wanted it. As her thin hair blew in the afternoon breeze, my mother told me to keep my eyes on the field. Don't look back at the crowd, she said. Don't give your detractors an audience. 
frustrated by her own youthful failure to quit the small town south, cowed by parents who couldn't understand her drive to be different. My mother had willed me to be different. A small-town girl who raised a small-town boy, she thought that willful difference could serve me as a kind of armor. By the time I entered the first grade, she had tacked a poster to the wall of my bedroom. I can't recall the background image, but I did memorize the text, pulled from chapter 18 of Henry David Thoreau's Walden. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. For the longest time, when someone asked about my mother, I told stories like the ones I've shared here, weaving a portrait of a gregarious woman of great social intelligence. She was that. She was also brazen and zealous. I have a photo from around 1976 from what I think was a bicentennial pageant. She had intended to costume me as Thomas Jefferson, or maybe it was Benjamin Franklin. The look was small-town flouncy. Wearing a blousy shirt with ruffles at the chest and at the wrists, my pants tucked into over-the-calf boots, I squint back into the camera. Looking at it now, I can't believe my father let me out the door, and I can't believe how confident and easy in my bones I looked. After I flunked out of college, where I did my best to match my mother's alcohol intake and channel her social skills, at about the time I won my first corporate job, I walked the aisles of an Atlanta grocery store with a roommate, picking up supplies for a steak dinner we planned to cook for friends. We had stacked the cart high with artichokes and T-bones and Idaho potatoes and were on the way to the checkout when I doubled back to get a sweet potato. My friend Brant looked at me and asked, Why do you always have to be different? He didn't mean it as a challenge. He wanted to understand. But I didn't know then how to explain myself. This winter, as our son applied to colleges, I went looking for my mother. I wanted to know what she was like before busted dreams and booze and violence and depression took her, back when she was full of promise and brio like Jess is now. Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, had invited me to give a talk. When they asked, the conference organizers didn't know that my mother had studied there. I climbed the steps of the library where she had crammed for exams. I peered into the windows of her former dorm. At the archives, I thumbed a yearbook from 1940. My mother, age 17, stared back in her class photo, precocious and confident, pale eyes shining, blonde hair coaxed into tight curls. I inspected a twirler's uniform like the one she wore and a prim school uniform, too. Later, when people asked me what it was like to walk the grounds of her college, I said all the right things. It was emotional. I got a glimpse of her life. I closed the loop. The truth was, I didn't get a sense of her world as a 17-year-old until I quit campus for the Ebenezer Grill, a diner on the edge of town where the owner greets newcomers like me 
by introducing us to countermates. I met an old guy named Pookie who loved Winnie the Pooh as a child and never shook the nickname. And I met a husband and wife team that sold charcoal at the tailgate of their pickup. I imagined myself sliding into a stool there on weekday mornings. I imagined myself belonging to that place. Like me, my mother loved a crowd, and she would have loved that crowd. At Ebenezer, over a breakfast of liver mush and grits, between sips of coffee, I recognized the common drive to belong in a scrum of strangers and friends, the want to step out of the grandstand and into the spotlight that links us today. Earlier this summer, as Blair and I stood in the kitchen of our Oxford home after a weeknight dinner, I told her about the guilt I carry for shutting my mother out. We display few family pictures, I said. Her style has gone missing from my life, I worried. It's my fault, I implied, that Jess doesn't know much about her and that I have blocked her from the stories we tell about ourselves. Blair listened for a while, and then she reached for a piece of silver that had passed to us when my mother died, and she nodded toward a framed copy of my mother's catfish stew recipe, inspired by her father's fish camp on the Edisto River near Bowman, South Carolina. Gently, patiently, Blair reminded me that although she has adapted that recipe, using a more modern one from Scott Peacock and Edna Lewis, the reason we serve that catfish stew at every third dinner party is that we made a decision a while back, during another time of introspection and doubt, to remember my mother in that way. What Blair didn't have to say is what I already knew. My written voice, my visual style, my want to step into the spotlight were born of her deferred hopes. My mother would have loved the stew Blair now makes, and she would have loved the life Blair and Jess and I have made together, in which our friends write books and play music and make art, and often gather in our home to talk about that work and mark those achievements. Our life is rooted in the small town we claim, but it is not limited by our small town's geographical and social contours. If I try hard, I can picture my mother at our table, spooning into a bowl of catfish stew, talking about the promise of the wide world beyond the South Carolina small town that birthed her and the Georgia woods that entrapped us. Our little family has spent a good bit of the summer plotting Jess's departure for college. On the advice of our former minister, I started writing a sort of instructional manual for him. The accounting, now at six pages, includes how to haggle at a market, how to buy and season and grill a ribeye, and how to mix a Negroni. Blair and I have also been looking for mementos that convey the same thing. We made you and we love you. We hope to help you as you make your own way. And I've begun to reckon with how I might ready Jess to carry forward memories of the grandmother he never knew. What I've written here is a start. For his 18th birthday, Blair and I gave Jess an Alberto Cruz lithograph we bought on impulse after a boozy dinner in Oaxaca, Mexico. It shows a young boy trudging forward under the burden of a house strapped to his body like a backpack. With that gift, 
which we hope he will hang in his dorm room this fall, Blair and I aim to say, no matter where you go, your home and your little family will go with you. And no matter the future struggles you face, what you gained under our roof will carry you forward. Thinking of my mother and of the home in the woods where I grew up, I now recognize another meaning. No matter where I go, no matter how happy our little family might be, I will always carry forward what went right and wrong out there in that house in the country near Clinton. Now, as Jess packs to leave, I pray that the load we have strapped to his back does not serve as drag, but as propulsion. Thanks, John T., for, for that essay, for bringing that story to hear tell. Thanks for asking. So the essay, in a way, can read like a tour of wounds. And when my curiosity is urging me to ask for more, to learn more about those wounds, you move on, right? Um, and you write with transparency, but um, there's also a buffer, so you're revealing, but you're doing so with purpose. And when you were drafting, I wonder, what was the, the, the push and pull like? Um, the angel and the devil on your shoulder deciding what to include, what to leave out. And what did you want to reveal and what did you want to keep safe? There's nothing I wanted to keep safe. I mean, this is an attempt to bust open some things. Um, the limits of this piece were in my knowledge um, you know, this is kind of the best example I can offer of the French roots of this word, you know, essay. This is a try. And it's a try to figure out what went wrong and what went right in my childhood. And it's also hopefully part of a book I'm at work on about the ways in which I quit my home when I was a child and began claiming new sorts of homes, first in a barbecue restaurant up the road and later in dim sum houses in Atlanta and later in bars in Louisiana, like wherever it might be. So, you know, smart writers get multiple purposes out of one piece. So, I'm not saying I'm a smart writer, but um, I, I was acting smart in this case. So this was an attempt for me to figure something out about myself, right. to set the ground for a book project I want to undertake that requires me to know something about why I quit my house and began making new sorts of homes in bars and restaurants. You begin with this, this lack of surety about... Um, your relationship with your mother, and then discover that you have been honoring her the whole time, just in subtle ways, and, and they become striking as your your son's leaving the house. Um, if you can tell me about, you know, epiphany, which is where you want to get to, you know, purpose in an essay, um, and in that spirit of the French word essay, <laughs> how did you, you know, get to that? Did you? How did you stumble toward it? In many ways, that piece is 
almost a real-time written piece because toward the end of that piece, um, you know, I do what so many writers do. I come out of my little shed or come out of my bunker and I talk to my spouse, you know, and I began talking to Blair about what I was writing. Um, I've quit asking Blair to read my pieces because, I, you know, asking for affirmation or critique from my bride is not necessarily the best way to to um to engage with my bride um but idea generation and big picture stuff is the stuff of our conversations whether she's working on art or a poem or i'm writing and so as i began to sound that bell clang that bell that said you know i've divorced myself from my mother i don't pay attention to my mother Uh, my wife gently did things like, you know, hand me a piece of cutlery that had Winthrop College inscribed on it. Um, that's now um, tacked to my bulletin board where I write. My wife did things like, um, well, she just reminded me of the artifacts in our home that speak to my mother and specifically to her catfish stew recipe, which at the point I was you know, having a little pity party with myself was like three feet from my elbow. You bring up the word artifacts. Um, food writing requires objects, requires artifacts, is usually the prompt for doing that. And this piece, of course, uses this recipe, this meal that your your mother is famous for. Um, tell me about why that's so useful as a storyteller and, and, and perhaps, you know, what artifacts other than the recipe helped you write this story? (laughs) Um, the artifact piece of this, the catfish stew recipe, which is, you know, as I was talking about was, you know, to the right of my elbow as I, as I, um, self critiqued, um, and is to the left of our stove was sent to me by my cousin, um, Meredith Berry. Um, (laughs) It was only in that moment when Blair gestured to the recipe that the recipe that it was only in that moment when Blair gestured to that recipe for catfish stew that that catfish stew became a part of the story and the title of the story. Because at that point, I was just writing about my mother and I went, oh, shit, I need something about food in here. (laughs) You know, and I'm I'm being playful, but I'm also being serious because, um, you know, I've been writing about food and the culture of the American South all the while. And, you know, I've got my 10,000 hours in and my belief is my I have the best success when I leverage those bases. I'm writing about the South and I'm writing about food in some way. And if I'm going to write something for the Oxford American, you know, it's their food column. It's called Local Fair. Now, what food mattered? And Blair gestures to that piece. And I realized, oh, my gosh, um, that catfish stew, which we cook and honor her with when we cook it, um, that matters. And that's a part of the piece. And that's a way for the piece to become somewhat about food. Um, And a way for me to come face to face with the legacies of my mother. More specifically, um, for example, your your essay a few years ago about Edna Lewis, mm-hmm. you use a photograph yeah. to prompt narrative, to begin yeah. your journey as a storyteller. 
did you employ similar tactics on this essay? I did. Um, and about five years ago, I went in the attic and found all my photos that I could find, you know, including, you know, really embarrassing college photos, including really embarrassing childhood photos, one of which I describe in the piece of me in like a frilly kind of whatever someone thought in 1976 a revolutionary era boy looked like. Um, I found myself, you know, as a barely, you know, as a just born child, I found all the range of photos and I scanned them. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I found another batch and I scanned it. Um, so now it's all, it's on my phone, it's on my iPad, it's on my laptop. And um, when I began writing this piece, I went looking for pieces that could amplify my own memories. So I went looking for pieces, not to discover new memories, not to say, oh, I don't even remember that time I played football in my backyard with a bunch of people and there's a picture of it. But I do remember that time my mother sprayed champagne um, all over my little league team. And oh my gosh, there's a picture of that. So that actually did happen. My, my memory, you know, isn't amplifying something that didn't happen or might have happened in a different way, there is a photograph that I can study of this dim memory I have from my childhood and the marriage of my own dim memories and those scanned photographs gave me these living and breathing artifacts coming from two dimensions of my life. Um, and that's what I wrote to. I wrote to those pieces that combine those two things. A thing that I, I, I appreciate about your writing is um, how devoted you are to structure at times. And and I can always tell your structure. I can tell when you're taking me past, present. Um, but it never feels rote. It never feels forced. So I want to know how you lay out structure when you're, when you're, when you're starting your essays. Um, I mean, what's the first thing you do? What is your outline? What and, and and do you do you set a bullseye where you're trying to get to, or do you just let it happen naturally? I begin with the scene that I'm most excited about. Um, I begin with this image I can picture both in my head and have a sense of how to get it on paper, and that usually begins with me you know, in an airport somewhere, or it begins with me um, waiting outside the doctor's office, or it begins with me in an idle, stolen moment, typing things furiously into my Evernote. Um, I'm an obsessive Evernote user. Um, I'm a Rat Pack Evernote user. I stuff everything in there, um, and then I harvest it. Um, and so... Um, an essay usually begins with me with, after collecting a bunch of scenes and ideas and kind of continuing to scroll through them, figure out, kind of inventory what's there, the thing I'm most excited about. And that thing I write first may end up being the middle of the essay. It may end up being the beginning, maybe the end, but it's the peg. And it's one of those three places. It's beginning, middle, or end. Um and structure for me evolves from there, and it evolves from 
once I've done all the research, clearing away all the things that I can't support somehow by a scene, and then lying to myself that that really is the way I write because I don't always write in scene and I struggle toward that like a lot of souls. Important to a structure for an essay in this has to be not just the scenes, but the building to meaning and the shifting between the two. Is there a way you've learned to to balance that, to to embed that in the structure of your essays? I don't know if I'm as self-reflective as a writer as you might want me to be. Um, Are any of us? <laughs> That's well, the purpose some, of podcasts. Right, right, right. Some <laughs> of us can, can talk a better game about this. Like, I think the best thing I can do when I'm trying to write an essay and then I'm trying to rewrite an essay, which is where the pleasure lies, um, is move things around boldly and, um, and look at what those movements yield. So, you know, a piece that feels plotting, um, when you take the bottom of the piece and put it up top, may gain new energy and velocity. And I try to do that sort of thing and I try to do even more of it. Every time it makes me nervous, I'm, I know I'm doing the right thing because then I'm worrying, can I write myself out of this? Can I fix this structural change I made? And there is a, there is a, there is a cadence that my writing yields when I'm good. And it's because I've rewritten the damn thing and turned it upside down. Um, We've we've talked a lot about your mom, but the other character uh, in the essay that you mentioned is is your son, right. and that's what prompts all of this. And as someone who's anxious about raising a child of his own, um, I can only imagine how hard it is to be grappling that. In, in some ways, I'm looking at your essay as, as a glimpse into my own future and, and wondering about that. You know. I, what was the conversation like with your son in getting ready to write this piece? It was more after the piece. I handed Jess this piece and said, you might want to read this. And he came back about an hour later kind of wide-eyed and said, I didn't know this. And I said, you know, in some ways I didn't either. Um, so, you know, my want was to be as honest with our son as he took off to make his own way in the world. And, uh, and that's a lot of, I don't know, that's a burden to place upon my son, um, our son. Um, at the same time, my hope was for him to better understand me and how I was raised and, and, uh, and some of what I expect of him and want for him by way of understanding how I grew up. Um, and to make real the specter of my mother in his life, who was who died just 11 days before he was born. I wrote that essay to send our son off to the world. Our son came back seven weeks later from college and said, school isn't for me, um, leaving home isn't for me, um, getting that far away from the house where I grew up isn't for me. So our son has returned home. 
and after me doing a you know a departure sermon for him in the Oxford American by way of um, a film the Oxford American did by way of another piece that I milked it man um, another piece I wrote for Garden and Gun about my wife and I claiming a new restaurant in D.C. where we visited all of it our son took a different path well. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I'm, I'm, but there's something wrong, perhaps with. I don't know if there's something wrong with me, but there's a, um, there's a, there's a comeuppance a coming for me who had this plan. Here's how you depart, son. Right. Well, I, I maybe to anybody listening here, I think uh, you're better off having written the essay and made the overtures towards your son than having not done it at all. I'd mm. agree with that. Yeah. This goes back to our discussion earlier about about therapy. And even though we're doing the work of journalism, of nonfiction, of telling stories with purpose, that we still have to allow pieces to change us that we write. Um, and I think it's just a, a grace, graciousness that we should provide each other or provide ourselves. That's beautiful. I wonder, what are you taking from this piece going forward that you didn't have before? What knowledge of self, knowledge of craft, are you thankful for this piece? What I've taken away from this piece, and it's something I've seen too, working with my friend Wright Thompson on this television show, True South, um, that um, to work toward and achieve a kind of emotional impact with what I write is kind of what it's all about. Um, and I don't know if I worked toward that goal previously. I worked toward telling a story. Um, and now I aim more toward the emotional impact of my piece. And I realize that to achieve that, if I can, requires me to be more vulnerable and me to show more of myself and me to tell more of myself. And that has changed my writing and my thinking in big ways. Well, thank you for bringing your story and your insights to, to hear tell and um, Merry Journey. Thank you, Andre. Thanks for the good questions and thanks for your friendship. This episode featured music by Walt Disney, Pierce Murphy, and Big Mean Sound Machine. To learn more about Hearthell and the Low Residency MFA Narrative Nonfiction Program at the University of Georgia, visit bit.ly slash Podcast. Again, that's bit.ly slash Podcast. Hearthell will be back soon with another true story 